Welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. I am Justin Landon, your host. One of the most important episodes Rocket Talk has ever featured was episode 23 with Kate Elliott and N.K. Jemison. The topic was bias, both from the reader, the writer, and the publisher. But I felt there were topics there that deserved some more exploration, and I wanted to be a little more specific. So I invited two new people to talk this time. First up is Cameron Hurley. Cameron is the author of the critically acclaimed Beldame Apocrypha, which began with the award-winning God's War. Her newest series, The Worldbreaker Saga, began with Mirror Empire last year and continues this fall with Empire Ascendant. She's currently in the midst of a David Gemmel Morningstar Award for Best Debut Epic Fantasy. Welcome, Cameron. Thanks for having me, Justin. Next up is Diana Rowland, best known for her Cara Gillian and White Trash Zombie series, both of which are continued this year with Vengeance of the Demon this past April and White Trash Zombie Gone Wild in October. She's been nominated for many awards and has seen a lot of dead bodies. Welcome, Diana. Thanks. So glad to have you both here tonight. Uh, we are here to, to talk about sexism and other intersectionalities uh, in publishing, but publishing is a business, and this is something that is pretty pervasive in the business world and other uh, parts of the world, of course. And both of you have worked in fields other than publishing. So I kind of wanted to get a little bit of your feeling about just sort of establishing a baseline that how pervasive uh, this idea is. So Di Diana, you worked as a cop. I'm sure this was a thing. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, a police work is a, it's a male-dominated profession. I mean, it's a male-dominated profession. It, it, and, and the men are... are well, they're, they're men, and I'm not sure how else to say that. Um, when, I, when I first became a cop, it was under a new sheriff who was trying to be very progressive, and he wanted to make sure that every team, every shift, had at least one woman on it, and that was a big deal. And that, that's how I got hired, was under basically an affirmative action kind of thing. But, you know, that was a big deal. Now, it, it's a lot more even. There's at least three or four on every team. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, definitely an adjustment. Uh, it's the old thing of uh, a woman has to prove she can, she can do the job. A man just has to prove he can't. And so there was a lot of that. Um, I graduated at the top of my academy class. Booyah! Um, so that helped a lot. And I was also an expert marksman. Booyah! Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so that helped too. <laughs> and plus, uh, you know, I did really well during like the, the, the combat simulation stuff and all that stuff. Um, cause I guess I have a lot of repressed anger. Uh, but, uh, so yeah, but I definitely had to prove myself. Um, but the interesting thing is once I did prove myself on my team, boy, they had my back. Um, and then it was a different kind of sexism cause I was their little sister and, <laughs> And I, I remember one specific instance where I did a, um, a traffic stop that did not go well, and I ended up having to call for backup. And and there's two ways to call for backup, basically. Uh, when I was a cop, there was a 1055, which means I need one unit. Or there's 108, which means I'm getting my ass kicked and I'm about to die. Um, the second one, everybody shows up. The first one is you're supposed to get one unit, and the dispatcher usually says one unit. But when I said this was after I had to pepper spray the guy and I was saying everything. And when I said 1055 one unit, every single person on my team headed my way. Um, so by the time they all got there, all 11 men, uh, I had the guy handcuffed and I was pouring water on him, you know, because I'd had to pepper spray him. Um, and, and it was very interesting that they were out there to protect their little sister. And I probably shouldn't say any more because the FBI might investigate what happened next, but that's beside the point. <laughs> We just get about, Diana talking. <laughs> this podcast is all about protecting the innocent. So <laughs> we're, we're good. Um, speaking of repressed anger, Cameron, I'm sure in the marketing and advertising world, you've had a fair bit of that. You know, it's funny. Uh, uh, marketing and advertising 
you know, I, I actually ended up the first four I went to, I think it's like, it was like 60% women, uh, on my team. And, uh, and the one guy who kind of stepped out of line and was weird about it didn't last very long. So that was actually good. Now it was funny because the first time, uh, I actually encountered sexism at my job was my first real foray, like into, uh, you know, the, the big bad world. Cause my parents always told me, you know, oh, you're equal and just work hard and everything's great. Well, <laughs> it was actually at, it was actually at a movie theater job, believe it or not, where, uh, in order to get into management at the movie theater, you had to be able to lit, you had to be able to do projection. And in the projection booths, they were still hauling around those big canisters that were like 70 pounds of film. So in order to do that job, like you had to haul 70 pounds. Well, that's, you know, I, I can haul 70 pounds. It's not a problem. But there was this immediate assumption that, well, women can't do that. Uh, so what you would see a lot is that guys would immediately be chosen, you know, guys who hadn't been there as long as I had and I felt, you know, like weren't doing as good a job were getting management positions. And we find, you know, I finally asked, I'm like, so what is this? And they're like, well, you gotta, you know, be able to haul 70 pounds. And well, I can haul 70 pounds. No one's ever asked that. Um, what actually ended up happening was, you know, I ended up leaving that job, but, um, one of the, my best friend actually took a job there. She said, you know what I had to do to get into management, Cameron? I had to spend three months on my own time, not being paid for it, getting trained as a projectionist, showing them that I could do the work just so that I could then have a management position. So she basically trained herself for free worked for free Jeez. Um, and it was the only way that she could do it and it's like it's really ridiculous that even at again you know this kind of podunk job that you know you have to go in and you have to be you know again twice as good to you know be given half as much as much respect so that was that was like my first like eye-opening experience you know my mom had talked about stuff where you know she was the first woman in the office you know where she was at who was a she was an area manager at a restaurant business and she said you know the problem was they would actually put the news of like what was happening in the stores it was posted on a bulletin board in the men's bathroom <laughs> So she would have the receptionist like hold the door open and like to the men's bathroom and she would go in there so she could read the news of the day. She's like, it was ridiculous and it was degrading, right? Like it's this whole idea of this is literally, it was a boy's room. It is the boy's club. Um, and you think it's so different, but then, you know, here I was getting into this situation where, oh yeah, sure you can move through the ranks, but you know, you have to go above and beyond and work for free. <laughs> Yeah, my, no. my mother, my mother had stories like that too. She went to Cornell University for engineering, and um, and, and didn't graduate. She only, I think, she only made it through two years. They didn't have scholarships for women engineers back then, um, but she got work as a, a junior draftsman, and basically the engineers would take her work and just sign their name on it. Um, because her work was better than theirs, but she was just a junior draftsman. That's all she could be, basically. Oh. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think she was a little bitter about a few of those things. Yeah. She, she went into women's studies after that. So. Oh. And we think things have changed, but you know, I mean, you, if you sit down and you actually talk to your colleagues about how much they're paid, that's really fun. And if you all, you can all get drunk and then you're like, oh my God, I can't believe they're paying so and so, you know, so much more money than me when they don't, um, you know, they don't have as much experience, blah, blah, blah. And I, I've run into that, you know, as well as I kind of go up as well. And that's, mm -hmm. and that's, that's actually probably, and, and that's in publishing too. That's a really powerful thing to realize. Advances and that's what Yeah. The advances. I, I was, there was mm -hmm. a, a younger but, writer actually just met, and yeah, we we swapped advanced stories. And I, I'm like my jaw like literally dropped. I'm like, how is that even possible that you were paid that much money for that book? Right. Um, but it happens. It happens all the time. Yeah. But I think it's easy for people to forget how far we've come. You know, as far as, um, you know, as far as 
would become with sexism and feminism, it was just 1973 or 74 that the head and master laws were, were ruled unconstitutional, yeah. where where women's income was their husbands. And basically, a husband was... A husband had final say regarding all household decisions and jointly owned property without having, without wife's knowledge or consent. It made no difference. And that was not that long ago. So yeah. I think it's important to see it really bad. And now it's not as bad, not as but bad. It's, yeah. it's not perfect either. Though. But it's so, not equal. Yeah. yeah exactly. Right? Yeah. But, but it's going around pretending. Yeah. Right. So it's important to see that, wow, this was really bad and we're not done yet. Okay. It's, yeah. you know, it is a continuum. We're still on that continuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I would just point out that, uh, I'm taking advantage of my wife in a certain way, and it's quite the opposite. I have not looked at my finances in years. <laughs> she, she, she does it all. So. Yeah, I do all the money in my house. <laughs> I, a, I take care of everything financial. Yeah, I tell that to some of my male friends, and they think, they're like, dude, what are you doing? She, yeah, but she probably is good at it, right? Yeah, and that's, she's, she's yeah. awesome at it. <laughs> exactly. So the person who does it is the one who's good at it. and that Because money's kind of important. Yeah. In an you ideal know? world, that's how it would be, is that, right. yeah, the partners at it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And we're, get, we're getting better. I think there's a lot more fam. I know a lot more families and couples where it is a partnership, where it's a good give and take. Um, sometimes it's not. I mean, there's a lot of couples where, well, most couples have what, especially with the kids, what I call the d- default position. There's going to be one person who is the default as far as making sure everything gets done with the kids and that sort yeah. of thing. And it's usually the woman. Now, I know several families where it's the man, but... Um, that is actually going to tie into publishing because you see that, I think, with the ability to go to conventions and travel and do yeah. book tours, if you're the default position, you just can't do that much. Um, mm-hmm. There are some big authors in our field, many male ones, who can. They go to conventions all the time because they can. They can drop everything and do that. And there's a lot of um, single women or women without children who can do that, too. And then you have the uh, couples with fam- uh, families and kids. It's a little more negotiation. And... Uh, has to be considered more, and that ties into success and people remembering you. And I missed a, a year and a half of conventions because of family issues. And there's people like, "Oh, you're still writing?" It's like, yeah, yeah really. <laughs> Isn't that sad? How it doesn't take that long. Everything really? moves so fast now. Like you drop out for three, six months, and people are like, "Oh, you? Are you still writing?" And you're it's like, crazy. "Oh my god, yeah, <laughs> it's horrifying." Yeah. So real quick, I want to kind of jump back and touch on something that Cameron mentioned, which was the idea that when she was working in the movie theater, people would say uh, there was an assumption that a woman couldn't do the work, right? And so it was just a a buried assumption, and it never would have really ever been discussed if Cameron hadn't sort of marched up there and said, "Why, why am I not being considered? And it seems that this happens in publishing uh, pretty often. I'm going to reference a story I know uh, without... Uh, naming any names or the convention, but I know there's a convention where uh, a particular male author who is not well-known uh, and does not have great sales sort of made demands that the convention fly him in and put him up, and <laughs> and they were granted. Yeah. Really? Um, yeah. And I don't... he asked. Yeah. Not to say that there aren't women that are asking and being denied. I'm sure that's true, but do you think part of that is that built-in assumption that, that men feel like they can ask and demand? Men feel entitled. Uh, and, and that's probably one of the things, again, a conversation I have, again, with the same best friend who, you know, managed to work her way up through the movie theater. We had this conversation a lot. I finally convinced her also to then negotiate her salary at a job. And she, it was the most terrifying thing she'd ever done in her entire life. Um, and it's hard. And because we're not, 
we're not taught to be entitled. Um, again, you look at when people are taught to be subservient and, and underclass, like you start, there are certain types of behaviors and that's looking away from things and, you know, smi you, uh, women smile more and say, I think more and I feel more because it softens that blow, right? And there's a double-edged sword because if you go in and you are too assertive and, uh, you know, too aggressive, then you are called out on it as being too assertive and too aggressive and you're too difficult to work with. And on the other hand, if you go out and you are too submissive and you're, you don't say enough things, well, then you, know, not you don't get all the toys. Yeah. Exactly. You don't get all the prizes. So it's a really, I mean, they've really got you in a double bind. Um, and I mean, that's something that I've worked particularly hard for, again, not just in, you know, my, my day job as far as negotiating, uh, salaries and benefits and things like that. But of course, then also we move on to advances in publishing is being, you know, very, very much like, you know, going after what you want without being seen as, as bitch, right? Yeah. I and mean, it's also, it's yeah, so hard. Yeah. I think this also isn't, um, I'm not sure all men are so entitled, but men don't necessarily have the same fear of being told that their requests are ridiculous or that they don't deserve it. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, little lady, really? Why would we want to fly you in? You? Because we have that. Come mm -hmm. on, you you just write that romance stuff, don't you? It's like, I don't write romance, it just has sex. But that's another argument. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Which actually leads me to a, an actual publishing sexism thing. Mm. So... Um, the, we were talking about, you know, what can men get away with that women can't get away with? The biggest thing that men can get away with is writing sex into their books. Yes. Because if a woman writes sex... Seriously. Yep. Well, it's like if a woman writes writes sex into the books, oh, it's a romance. Mm -hmm. You know? And, uh, but, uh, you know, men can write sex into the books and it's just a sex scene, you know, a sex scene. That's what it sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And it's really weird because, like, the picture of Justin is on my screen and he's smiling and giving me a thumbs up. So it's like he's agreeing with what I'm saying. <laughs> I know, right? Like, I minimize all that before. I'm like, I just don't need that dude staring it's at just, this. Sorry, time. sorry. <laughs> so, it's a, like I've been told many times that my books are, are, are romance or are border on romance. And, um, and it cracks me up because my Demon series, it's seven books long and only four of the books have any sex in them at all. And my, my zombie series has none. There's no sex on the page, but they border on romance. Yeah. I don't get it. It's like it's like saying, and no one says Jim Butcher, right, is right. writing romance right. books, right? <laughs> yeah. Diana, just to kind of jump off that a little bit, have you ever felt any pressure from the industry to put more sex in? Mm. Not really. I've actually had pressure from my fans, um, but it's that's my demographic. I, I have a lot of them saying, we want more sexy times. It's like, well, you know, no. Um, but I also get a, a different double standard that's, that I find interesting about my characters, where um, the ca main character in the Demon series, in a in a span of a year and a half in book time, she had sex with two different men, and she was a slut. Oh she God. was a slutty, slutty, mixed slutty pants. And it's like, really? So, I find that interesting. <clears throat> yeah, th those always fascinate me, the double standards with characters, too, where what you write and how, yeah, anyway. It goes all the way down, all the way down. <laughs> it's turtles all the way down. Did, Having sex. Did, Never mind. Did, did Nix ever get ac accused of being uh, a hoochie, Cameron? A slut, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. With Nix, either people really loved her or they really hated her. And the people who really hated her just were just like, she's just an awful person. Like, all the way down. Again, all the way down. It was an awful person. But, yeah, no, a lot of people uh, appreciate Again, it's it's like when you find your true fans, the people who stuck in for all the sex parts of her having sex with whoever she liked loved it, right? 
Um, which is, that's great because that's my target audience. That's people who are like, you know, hey, I just want to read this stuff about people who are people um, and who don't give a crap about what other people think. So, yeah, so no, not, you know, uh, the ones who hated her hated her just because she was a very unlikable character. But again, that gets back into, and that gets back into, that's really good too, is these are probably the same people who would read a Joe Abercrombie book because we can't go a rocket talk without talking about Joe Abercrombie. Uh, contractually <laughs> um, where required. People, I know, where people are like, hey, it's fine to have them unlikable characters in these dude books, but a woman who's unlikable, oh my gosh, that's a horrible person. She's a slut and she's mean and, and whatever. She should be a mother and be nurturing. So that's very interesting too, is that there's a lot of pushback with that. Um, as far as I think that women, you know, female characters are not allowed as much leeway as far as being unlikable and complex. To be unlikable just means complex. They're right. complex people. Um, and I hate that, that we are not allowed to show like this full range of what it means to be female. And it's really limiting. Um, and I think that absolutely reflects in, you know, how we can present as being female and what that means. Because if we can't even see it in fiction, how are we going to be able to actually do that in real life? Um, and I find it very interesting how, how you know, people really push back hard against that. That's really good. I like that. That's true. Cameron, you've been pretty lucky with your publishers thus far that have been seemingly have sort of embraced the fact that you're writing stuff that is uh, dark and, and not pleasant and challenges lots of things with gender and that kind of stuff. I mean, it seems like it's been a pretty, you've had a, at least um, content-wise, had a very pleasant publishing experience that nobody's really ever told you you can't write that. Of, of, who's, of who's bought of who's bought your work, right? Right. Of who's of who's bought myself. Well, and you also have to remember that you know, especially my first publishers, but my second as well. Um, they don't edit a lot. <laughs> they don't. Uh, right. Let's be real. Yeah. Um, I uh, there's there's uh, there are smaller publishers, especially my first publisher, very small publisher. They very much concentrated on getting as many books out as possible. So for me, yes, that was actually. It was good and bad, right? Um, obviously, there's there's pacing issues with my work that I really would like to work on. I want to learn plot a lot better. Um, I'm looking forward a lot to working with Joe Monti at Saga Press because he's a very hands-on editor. Um, but at the same time, that did give me the opportunity. I had a lot of leeway. Like, Infidel and Rapture were hardly edited at all. Like, that's very raw stuff. Um, so... So, uh, so yeah, I guess I, I got lucky, but that's just small press lucky is that, you know, small, and it, and it hit like it got its audience. And so I think people are like, okay, well, this is kind of a thing. And then Mirror Empire moved a bunch of copies and they're like, oh, okay, well, I guess that worked. <laughs> so. I guess where I was going with that was your publishers seemed happy to position you as quote unquote grimdark, but you often don't see your, you, yourself positioned that way by sort of commentators or critics, maybe more so now, but certainly in the beginning. Let's be real about who made me grimdark. I made me grimdark. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's, there's been a lot of, um, I, I was well aware coming in, uh, you know, this is, there's a lot of strategic stuff that goes into this. I was well aware coming in that epic fantasy had turned toward, it was a bunch of grimdark dudes and Robin Hobb. Uh, again, the token, the token woman. And I was like, I want it to be, if, the, if someone's going to have an all male list, it's going to be the all-male list in Cameron Hurley. Uh, and I came into it thinking of it and positioning myself very strategically that way, where I knew I needed to not talk about matriarchy or gender as far as on the back cover of the copy. I knew I needed to have an incredible cover, uh, which, you know, Mark at Angry Robot and, uh, you know, uh, Richard Anderson just knocked out of the park. They did an amazing job on that. Um, but I knew that I needed to, pos to position myself as grimdark, and I was lucky in that I had a gentle neutral 
gender neutral name. Um, so, so yeah, right out the gate, I, I knew that I was coming into it and I had a lot of disadvantages. And this is something that coming into publishing, I think a lot of folks really need to understand, you know, if, if you're a woman writer coming in, yeah, you're going to start six steps behind. So you need to understand, you know, what, what people are going to try and do and you need to, you know, trick them. <laughs> had a really good point about your gender neutral name um first off i think you're totally brilliant for um positioning yourself like that i think that's fantastic um but I, i've been thinking a lot about you know what i'm going to do after my series are finished i want to write different uh, genres and that sort of thing and i've been thinking a lot about pseudonyms because my god the assumptions about what you mm -hmm. must obviously write if you have a female name is going to have sex and romance and feelings in it and it's a it's a there's a reason why women take you know gender neutral names when they're uh, entering things like mystery or like you said grimdark or something like that uh, look at nora roberts fucking nora roberts took a pseudonym when she stepped into mystery jd uh, jd rob was a gender neutral pseudonym because she wasn't sure how it would be taken i mean if fucking nora roberts has to do it yeah <laughs> and of course megan lindholm robin hobb yeah. um but yeah that's it's just one of those realities of the business because there's an assumption you know, you go into Reddit, and I, and I love Reddit fantasy. It's oh. a great thing. But, God, sometimes you're just like, why? All these people talking about they're so afraid of touchy-feely feelings, romance, or women authors. It's like, ugh. You know. And, anyway. Diana, you write, <laughs> in writing urban fantasy, you're writing a genre that the, I like to call it bro science, which is sort of like, <laughs> it's just like sort of like the science that we make up. It's often used in bodybuilding, bro science. Like, hey, man, mm -hmm. if you eat a lot of protein, you'll get ripped. Uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Do it one after, right. after you work, one hour after. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But in, the bro science in publishing is like, well, urban fantasy is a, is a woman dominated field, which is. Yeah, let's look at who the bestsellers are. Yeah. <laughs> Dresden, you know, uh, Jim Butcher. Uh, yeah, no. Kevin Hearn. And, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, a lot yeah. of. A, Go on, tell me. Yeah, a lot of yeah. them are, are men. And so there's, yes. I think it's, it's this interesting um, narrative that's been created around urban fantasy that like, oh, well, that's where the women write. Mm -hmm. it, it, there are some very successful women in urban fantasy, but it's not everybody. No, it's and, not. I th it's actually, if you look at the top bestsellers, it's um, pretty much an even mix. You got Patricia Briggs, and, and I'm, I'm totally blank on names right now. But yes, uh, there are plenty of uh, male urban fantasy authors who are successful, and there are plenty of female urban fantasy authors who are successful. It's just, you know, the readership. They're, they're, it's, it's funny how many of them are just afraid of the cooties. But, you know, my, my cooties and the other women's cooties are cool. They're cool cooties. <laughs> They're cool cooties. They're cool cooties. I, mean, I have like descriptions of autopsies. How cool is that? <laughs> I, I think that's one of the hardest things to overcome. And I, I always talk about it in, in sports terms because I have a great sports analogy, which is in, in sports, they don't do this thing called um, uh, cross-racial comparisons, right? So like if you're a black baseball player, you can only be compared to other black baseball players. Oh, right. <laughs> and, and so, or if you're like a basketball player and you're white, you get compared to, to Larry Bird and you never get compared to Michael Jordan. Like, it just doesn't happen. <laughs> and so I feel like in publishing, when we do recommendations, it's often the same yeah. way, right? Yeah, like, I think you've nailed it. Like, if I'm going to recommend a, a, a Joe Abercrombie book to somebody, I'm going to say it's like... Yeah. Not, it's not like Cameron Hurley. It's like uh, George R. R. Martin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, or if you like well, the, uh, Jim Butcher, you'll like a Ben Aronovich, or, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, and you see that too. If you liked, if you liked Octavia Butler, you're like N.K. Jemison, and I'm like, no. <laughs> Those are different <laughs> but there is, there's like this assumption, and people go, oh, well, it's this and this. And like, those things are not alike. That is not alike at all. But they're yeah. both black women. Come on. Oh. Yeah. Well, it's, it's that reaching for what's easy. And I, and I think when you talk about sexism in any industry, uh, 
uh, oftentimes it I think in in many cases because I don't think anybody is malintentioned mostly it's just mostly, this yeah. un unconscious <laughs> unaware uh, people who don't think about the and raised thing. it, yeah, yeah, it's, it's been so raised to think in boxes, yeah. And I think it is a lot of times unconscious. Um, I was, uh, yeah, I was at um at Comic Con several years ago, and I was having a talk, uh, you know, out on the convention floor with a guy who works for a you know TV channel, and I've, I've known him for a few years, and we were just chatting, and then all of a sudden, without even saying excuse me, he said, "Oh, there's such and such author who is also a friend of mine," and left and went to talk to them, male friend, by the way. Um, and it was like, what just happened? And <laughs> I mean, I literally it was like, what just happened? That was weird. Um, but yeah, I was like, this, this guy's more important. This is the guy I want to talk to, even though we were like equal levels on our uh, career. It, it was, it was one of those interesting, interesting things. Hmm. Interesting. That, <laughs> yeah. I think that that's a whole nother tangent. I was talking with another writer who's kind of midless like me and we were both talking to a uh, best selling writer and we were both like, yeah, and that thing at cons that happens where you're talking and then they see someone else who's more important than you and then they walk over and they like totally leave you and the best selling author looked at us both and goes, that happens? Because <laughs> 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 they never experienced it, right? Which is, which to me is, again, that's that, that's privilege and sexism as well, right? Because as dudes, like you don't notice the things that happen to women authors because like you've never experienced it so if you're best-selling writer like you've always been the most important person in the room <laughs> right but you don't understand that never, there is a whole other world going on you know that is is you know nothing to do with you yeah it was really funny i'm gonna tread very carefully here uh for all of our own one of the things that we see from time to time is where a man will speak on a controversial topic. Well, I have some notes on that written down. Keep going. And skate. <laughs> and I, w I will use me as an example. I can comment on, let's say, the Hugo Awards uh, in, a, in any year and absolutely eviscerate things and throw, throw a fit on Twitter and rah, rah, rah. And then somebody like Natalie Lurs or Liz Burke comment on it and they get all kinds of nasty emails. Um, I remember one situation where Renee, mm -hmm. she wrote an article about uh, fandom and how she observed things in fandom and she got rape threats emailed. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm betting, um, Justin, that you've never gotten a rape threat? I have not. I have never okay. received any threat. Okay. Yeah, I have a... Um, fear Fear rules women more than men. Um, uh, I'm going to tell another story. The, the movie that came out not too long ago, Wild, with uh, what, Renee Witherspoon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that was yeah, good. where she goes like, you know, tromping all through the woods and everything. And, and, um, a male friend of mine came back from seeing that movie and he said, I, I just had this bizarre moment when she says that, you know, when she's meeting these pe these men and she's afraid. And I just realized that women are afraid of men. And I was like, duh. <laughs> yes. And the sky is blue. Yes, because men can hurt us. Men can do bad things to us. And traditionally, they have. And so, yes. And, and not all men. Is, okay, it's not, not all men do, but there are men who do. But this, and, and, and here's the important part. The system is set up to support them doing those things. When it, something bad happens, the system is always going to decide on, is always going to be on their side. So it, it, even if not all men, the men who do, the systems are set up to support them. It's, it's very hard. It's very difficult. There's, you know, the resources and this, but, uh, but yeah, so a man posts something controversial 
he's not going to get those death threats and rape threats. And so more men speak out about things. And so that kind of adds to the whole imbalance. I have a huge amount of respect for the women who do speak out and get those threats and everything. Um, I, I've gotten a few here and there for miscellaneous things um, that, that I've posted, and uh, but not too many. Um, I, I think that I'm in an unusual situation just because of my background as a police officer. Um, yeah. I, I've never been physically harassed at a convention, probably because people know that I'll break, I'll break things if they, you know, if someone grabs me. Um, and they probably, if they knew who I am, they also know that I have no problem, you know, pursuing, um, you know, legal recourse if I get what I think are legitimate threats to myself or my family. But it's also that thing of, I have a family, I have a daughter, I don't want to put her in any danger or, or threat or anything like that. So yeah, it's a, it's a totally different bravery to put yourself out when you know that you're going to get shit. Cameron, do you have any kind of, and this is asking you to be a, a psychoanalyst, uh, <laughs> which I know you dabble in on the side, what I struggle to understand is the mentality of the person that can see a comment from a man and then see a comment from a woman and decide they're going to go after one and not the other. It's a softer target. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and to me, again, you, <clears throat> you go after, you know, the guys. It, when you're pissed off at a guy, you go after the guy as much as you can. But again, if you can't get the guy, get somebody the guy cares about. Right? We see that in movies all the time. Who's the softer target? And you can't, you can't, you know, especially, you know, you know, a lot of wars and fandoms start between guys, right? Guys being mad with other guys. And then everybody else jumps into it and gets involved. And who ends up taking the fall, right? It's always the women around them. Uh, it's always they're going to be them because you can't touch the guys. The systems are there to support them. The guys are always going to come out in support of them. But the easiest target is always going to be the woman. And we see that in media. We see it in stories. We see it. That is our narrative. And when that is our narrative and we're playing the game and it is all a game, um, one of the things I, I studied a lot with, uh, you know, looking at the harassment with Arnita Sarkeesian and, and uh, you know, some advice I give to students. I taught a copywriting class uh, at a local college here. And I said, you know what? These these people think it's a game. And they are pushing you around like you're a piece on a board. And the end game is to get you to quit. That's their game. So yeah, it's like decide, they have a different decide what you want to play. Yeah, it's a whole other thing. You are not a human being. Um, and, and they are playing this game that is set upon, you know, all of these tropes and stories and other things that have come before and if they can't get the guy they're going to go after who the guy cares about and i think uh, a lot of them don't women think, who are close to them don't yeah. think about the fact of how it's received it's like oh you know rapey killing and stuff like that to them it is it's just a game and yeah. they don't think about the fact that the person on the other end has had the blood drained from their face has their hands shaking and well, feels sick to stomach and it's like i think i need to put a security system in my house and, and they don't well, think about that to be fair, some of them are sadists. Well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> and this is one reason, uh, you know, and people, you know, uh, I, I, everyone deals with harassment in different ways. But one of the reasons I don't post any of the stuff that I get and I don't talk about uh, a lot of the harassment I get is because these people are sadists and they want to know that they've upset you. Right. They want to know you're upset and you're afraid and you're getting a security system in your house and you fled your home. And that's they the exact same reason those. I don't I don't post my things yep. too. But but I yep. do have a security system on my home. Uh-huh, <laughs> so, right, yeah. Like and, and, yeah. Yeah. It's and and not just because of that, but you know, I I keep a secure house and you know, like I said I used to be a cop. So 
So yeah, I have guns. God, speaking of Anita Sarkeesian, <laughs> my word, I checked her Twitter feed yesterday. Oh, you just don't. Yeah, you just... Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I didn't... It's like Saladin Ahmed retweeted her. Or mm-hmm. she retweeted Saladin, so he got like looped into all of the all of the ha- hatred. Mm-hmm. I I just can't. So yeah. I think one of the myths in all of this, though, that we see a lot, that at least I hear, you know, kind of coming from a place of privilege, is that the internet has exacerbated this, and surely it has. But I think there's almost like we've kind of like I feel like the excuse is often put up that oh, it's just the internet, right? It's just the internet, <laughs> and that doesn't that doesn't seem to ring true to me. Um, things have happened. It's like that old thing of the, just, just ignore the bullies. No, really. Yeah. That'll work. By the way, it doesn't. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag FYI. Yeah. yeah. Hashtag bullied a lot. <laughs> Junior high. Oh, fun. Okay. <laughs> I, I think it's fair to say that things have generally improved on this, but it seems like we get two steps forward and then we go you know, a step or two back, and it's a constant uh, move forward and then move back. But ultimately, I mean, what's the solution to this? How do we continue to improve? Well, I think the problem is that we take the two steps forward, and it's like, oh, we're fixed. It's like, no, we still have a ways to go. And so when we think we're fixed, we get lazy, and people think, oh, it's okay, we can do that. No, we keep going. It's it's two steps forward, one step back, and then we two steps more forward, and two, you know, you just have to keep going. Um, and I think awareness is the biggest thing. There are a lot more, you know, male allies, so to speak, um, who are aware uh, and who, you know, what people call white knighting. You know, I don't mind white knighting. It, it helps. Uh, there's a lot that can be done from that position of, of awareness and saying, you know, it's okay if you say these things about me because this is the right thing to do. And more women are speaking up um, because it's a safer place than it was. A little bit. Um, I don't know if it's if it's about it being safer as much as it is about knowing that there are more people who have your back. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, exactly. one of the things it's it's really nice knowing that if I don't have the energy to do a post about some outrageous, sexist, crazy thing that happened, there's a whole community of people who are gonna who are gonna tag in, right? I can tag out and they can tag in. And it yeah. used to be, you know, I felt like I was screaming right by myself. Um, and I think more and more, it feels like there's much more of a, of a critical mass. Um, and, it's, and sometimes it's that's good and sometimes it's bad, right? It's yeah. like now it's like hysterical screaming all the time. It's just, it's nuts. But, but, it, but it keeps the attention on these things and it does make people, um, more aware of what they're saying. People are like, oh, I'm so afraid to do blah, blah. And I'm like, but you know what? It, it makes you stop and think, do I really want to make this com am I re- is this really what I want to say? Am I really contributing to the conversation here? Um, and it makes people hesitate in a way that I don't think they would have before. So it's it's one of those uh, you know it's kind of, it, oh outrage culture. But on the other hand, you know non outrage culture wasn't working. Yeah, and it's not so uh, much so- outrage, but it's also knowing that other people feel the same way you do, and that can be really heartening and morale building so to speak it's like okay i'm not the only person who gets annoyed when you know the super famous male author who talks over every woman you know okay i'm not the only one woman who who it's not just me i'm not just crazy and and that's i think is very important it's like i'm not just crazy no i'm allowed it's okay to be upset about this it's nice having seeing progress and knowing that there will be more progress because people are talking about it well, I guess in that way, the internet has been uh, an aid too, because it's kind of connected the the silent minority, right? It's given an opportunity to to link together. 
Uh, oh, definitely. I think the internet has been a huge boon to social um, social justice, um, civil <laughs> rights, and that sort of thing. I mean, we certainly wouldn't have same-sex marriage now if it wasn't for the internet. Oh, yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. So, yeah, uh, having these conversations, being able to have these conversations is very important. Even if you disagree, at least we're having a conversation. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, that was a big deal in the 70s, right? It was consciousness raising. It was women mm -hmm. getting together in little groups and saying, no, you're not crazy. Because you'd be gaslighted, right? All the time. No, you're just hysterical. You need to, you know, take, take some drugs. You'll be fine. It's like, no, really, I am, like, being put in a subservient position. And, like, the whole world is set up to, like, not not you know support my progress exactly <laughs> subjugate me uh, and when you get together with other people and they realize oh we're not all crazy um there's an incredible power in that and that's why a lot of people are also very you know terrified of social media is that it's allowed a lot of people who didn't have voices to have voices that matter and that mean something right um yeah so to, to loop back into a direct connection to publishing that lack of information uh, is is I think can be a, 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 a tantamount issue in publishing because one of the things that Cameron talks about is advances and and sales statistics and all of these things that largely are kind of a closed game. Uh, yeah, I t I've talked about my, my exact figures at, at panels and conventions um, several times um, because, yeah, like uh, Jim, Jim Hines and, I mean, hell, John Scalzi just now, huh? I think it's good to share numbers, and not just as, as a competitive thing, but to see how the industry is working right now. That's just business, you know, mm -hmm. business, knowing who's getting paid what and why and what kind of rights are being given away and that sort of thing. Well, and, and you know, it was funny. I uh, It was actually the first... Like, uh, when I when I was thinking about freelancing copywriting, because that's, you know, again, my day job is marketing and advertising, I was thinking about freelancing, and of course, I'm thinking, oh, I'll charge $25, $30 an hour, and I, like, sat down with a professional copywriter who I knew, and she said, I would never, ever, 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 ever charge less than $60 an hour, <laughs> um, and most of the people that I know who are working now are charging between, you know, $90 to $120 an hour, um, which is what I charge now. Um, but knowing that, because it's horrifying, the first time you have to ask for that much money per hour is like, you like, are like, you like want to die. You're like, they're going to laugh at me. They're going to laugh. Um, but it's actually been really great because it weeds out the people who aren't serious. Um, and the people who really want you will be like, yes, sure, I'll pay that. That's your rate. Um, because that is a competitive rate. That is what goes for a professional copywriter with, you know, 10, 15 years of experience. Uh, but without talking to someone else in my industry, I would never have known that. Um, even my posts that I put up with my, you know, book advances uh, that I did, I had a couple of writers email me and said, oh, you're so underpaid. And I'm like, I know! <laughs> I know! But by doing that, it opens the conversation. Um, and then that gives me something to come back on, you know, with, with publishers and negotiations and things like that. And to be like, you know what? I we can I know you can do better because I know what you're paying everyone else. So uh so that's very good. And I think it's it's like anything else information is is really key and I and I I believe that too also just with our experiences with negotiations with uh sexism in the industry all those things and you know knowledge is power. And the more that we share those things with each other, I think the stronger that will be and it's those culture of silence. That's the stuff that you know is helping the big corporations, it's helping the abusers it's helping serial harassers us not talking about these things um you know our real power is in our community building and in talking to each other 
Grind <laughs> <laughs> all the axes. I think Cameron uh, pretty much hit the nail on the head there uh, to give us a good end to the episode. This was just a, a, a overview of, I guess, sexism in the workplace and other kinds of uh, discrimination in the workplace. And uh, I want to thank you both so much for coming on to talk about this. I know it's not the easiest thing to talk about in public, but I think it's important. Thanks so much, Justin. Thanks for having us. This has been Rocket Talk. <laughs>